I've also worked on one of the Star Wars shows. I don't know if I'm allowed to say which one. Okay, got it. So one of the upcoming Star Wars shows. Got the it. Watto show. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know everyone's been on the edge of their seats waiting for that. Wow. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 112. Today, we are talking about Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, Lord of the Rings generally, and we have an amazing special guest. It's always wonderful when we have new voices, as much as I love the voices of our regular team. So please give it up for Eileen Shim. Eileen, thank you for being here. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Eileen, just so you know, went to AFI with Connor. So we have Connor to thank for getting Eileen on the show. She's currently in London. She's one of the producers on HBO's Game of Thrones spinoff series, House of the Dragon. She's worked on an upcoming Star Wars show, which we cannot talk about yet, but which you will find out about soon. And she also, were you a producer on the Hulu series? Um, I was a, a staff writer and then executive story editor on Light as a Feather on Hulu. So Eileen is already a like a heavy hitting industry heavyweight and it's an honor to have you on the show and uh, and, and, and she's she's my very good friend uh, <laughs> who if i had to rank all my friends by the number of times they've been to the emergency room with me then sh- she would be oh, no. uh number one easily how many times and i was been- very very useless because i can't drive so i couldn't yeah. really be there for moral support Connor, yeah. <laughs> but i i was happy to be there during your time of need and walk that man when you couldn't so always happy to do that thank you eileen for keeping connor in a good <laughs> so there you go it's, you know, it takes a village yeah wow so there and who else is with us today hey it's daniel hey it's me carnal lloyd cruz the people's champion and my soundboard isn't working or i'd make it seem like edwin was here but he's not because he's he hasn't watched lord of the rings because he doesn't like movies and or edwin has decided to get in line for a 70 millimeter screening of is it episode four episode five four a new hope eight hours nine hours before it shows at the academy which interestingly before we even started recording this podcast sparked but that's edwin you guys know edwin if you listen to the podcast like a sudden debate about star wars and lotr and what constitutes real cinema and then edwin tripped and uh disappeared so uh there you go (laughs) the problem with that is i think all of us here love both so like there's no fight you gotta love them both and it's beautiful but edwin can only live in conflict yeah edwin is a passionate man he's a a man of many passions moving on because lord of the rings could fill up eight hours of podcast by the time you hear this it should be july 8th tomorrow at the million dollar theater we are screening raiders of the lost ark on 35 millimeter then immediately showing the shot-for-shot recreation that these kids made in the 80s that's actually become inspirational to a lot of people in movies. It's kind of mind-boggling to watch. They started doing it when they were like 11 because their simple rationale was, well, they're 500 shots and Raiders. We'll just do 500 shots, and then over the summer we'll have it done, not knowing what they were like biting off. By the time they were done with this, it took 30 years to complete. Most of it was completed while they were teenagers, though you watch them grow. They lit their basement on fire. I don't know who the babysitter was for that one, but it's an inspiration because they didn't know they couldn't do it, and they did it. So it becomes a metaphor, and we have director Eric Zala, who started that at 11 and now is my age. He's going to come speak about that. So see Raiders, Raiders the Adaptation, and then talk to Eric and get inspired. And then 
next week, July 16th, we are going to do the Mark of Zorro, the Douglas Fairbanks Mark of Zorro, the silent film on 35mm at the Million Dollar Theater with an original live score, just like we did F.W. Murnau's Sunrise. So we'd love to have you for that. August 13th at the Million Dollar Theater, we are doing a Bride of Frankenstein double feature and then a documentary on comic book artist Mike Mignola, who created Hellboy, and Mike Mignola is going to be there to just talk about being a graphic novelist, a comic book artist, and how that then translates into movie making. So we have a summer speaker series, and we want you to be part of of it and see it. As always, you can find out about everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Go to Eventbrite to get tickets. We do appreciate. I'm totally dumb on this stuff and I'm trying to get better, but if you like what we do and you want to write a review or a like or a follow or write an honest review and be like, hey, you guys need to step up your game. We want it all. There you go. All right. Moving on. Eileen, we're going to throw it to you first. So here you are in London producing obviously a totally different thing and yet sort of epic dragons, mythology, world building about big heady themes of power and struggle. What we're talking about today are Peter Jackson's adaptations of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's Fellowship of the Rings, The Two Towers, and Return of the King. We're not going to talk about The Hobbit. We're not going to talk about the Silmarillion. We're not going to talk about anything else. I mean, we might a little. Oh yeah, you guys take it wherever. But Peter Jackson was still a relatively small, independent, young filmmaker. He was in his early 30s when he won and convinced New Line, basically, to fund The Lord of the Rings, which everybody had said was an impossible to adapt trilogy. We had Michael Pellerin come in, who did all the behind the scenes on the movies, and he did an interview, and he was saying that Stanley Kubrick famously said you couldn't do it. Steven Spielberg famously said you couldn't do it. There had been a rights war forever. Ralph Bakshi tried an animated version of it in the 70s and stopped at the Two Towers. He couldn't even like get through the whole thing. And then Peter Jackson had wanted to do King Kong. It, it fell through at Universal. He weirdly said, well, let's take everything we were developing for King Kong and pitch people Lord of the Rings. He won it. And then the agreement with New Line was, okay, you're going to shoot all three movies at the same time for $270 million, $90 million a movie. And he said, I'll do it. And probably the most miraculous part of this story is not only did it succeed, but I think now, 20 years into the 21st century, most people consider Lord of the Rings one of the greatest accomplishments of the 21st century, maybe the greatest trilogy made in the 21st century cinematically. And who knew that when he started out? The story, just put simply, is about Frodo Baggins and his friend Samwise Gamgee, two hobbits. Little do they know they're sort of roped in by Gandalf to deliver this ring that their uncle Bilbo had. Has, not knowing that this ring was a ring forged by Sauron, the master of evil, and whoever has it supposedly will control everybody in Middle-earth. And the problem is that the ring is just destructive because it really represents power. So if you give into the temptation to want to do it, really all you're doing is serving evil Sauron's goals because Sauron is really the only person who really can control the ring because he created it. So the only way to get rid of this problem is to throw it 
went into Mount Doom, which is a volcano, and destroy it. But that's a near impossible task because Mount Doom is in the middle of Mordor, the heart of evil where Sauron lives. But the wizard Gandalf gets Frodo and Samwise, and then other people form this fellowship to try to help them do it. People who are good-hearted, who believe in alliances, who agree the ring is evil, and then along the way, all these things happen. I mean, there's too much to say, but I'm going to start there. And of course, we haven't even talked about Gollum, who basically kept the ring and became a kind of sort of horrible cavernous creature. And he represents really what the ring does to you because he's so obsessed with the ring that he's no longer even human. He's become a creature that lives in a cave that just obsesses over the ring. But even he plays a part in this story. So I was actually born in Korea and I grew up there till I was nine. And one of my favorite books growing up was The Hobbit, which in Korean, they call it The Hobbit's Adventure. And I had read it as just like a standalone children's book. And when I immigrated to the U.S. and I was learning English, I was really excited to be able to read it in the original language that it was written in. So when I felt like I was comfortable enough reading thicker books in English, I went to Barnes & Noble, went to the children's book section, found The Hobbit. And that was the first time that I realized that it was actually a prequel to a much larger series. And I was like, great, I, you know, this is my favorite book and there's three other volumes. And um, little did I know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> I started reading Fellowship and I was just absolutely obsessed. I remember reading the book in class. I had it under my desk, between the desk and my lap, and I was just reading in class. And spoiler alert, I got to the part where Gandalf dies and the Vines of Moria. And of course, I didn't know that he would be, you know, resurrected as Gandalf the White in the second volume. So I started sobbing in class. <laughs> the teacher came over and was like, oh my God, what's wrong? And I was like, they killed Gandalf. I didn't know how I was supposed to go on after that because I feel like that was one of the first times I'd ever read like someone who's meant to be you know, the authority figure, the mentor actually die. So it was just such a shock to my senses. I was like, I didn't know you could kill off a character like that. I was, you know, racing through the rest of the books. And then at some point, someone told me, I was like, oh, you know, they're making movies. Like that's coming out next year. And I was like, what? I didn't even know that they were making those. Yeah, I mean, it just kind of started my lifetime love for Lord of the Rings. Is my understanding correct? Did you partially learn English through reading the books? Or is that Yeah. Incorrect? So the year that I moved to the U.S., I think it was the year that the first Harry Potter book had come out. I remember it was like the Harry Potter books and also the Hobbit and then later the Lord of the Rings books. Like I would just come home after school and I was a latchkey kid. So I would just try to read one page a day with a Korean English dictionary and you know, I would just look up every word I didn't know in the dictionary and write it in a notebook and then make flashcards and quiz myself. And, wow. you know, obviously it took me months and months and months, but, you know, that's how I kind of learned English, learned Western culture. And I, and I just became like a lifelong fantasy fan after that. I obviously did a haltering trying to summarize what Lord of the Rings is about. Would you revise or correct that? How do you see it? If you were going to explain Lord of the Rings to someone, how would you set it up? This is going to sound so dumb, but when Lord of the Rings had, I think it was like the McDonald's tie-in, they had like a, <laughs> they had like a like quote on the side of the bag and it was Galadriel's quote to Frodo. It was like the smallest of us can change the course of history. And that for me is kind of like the thematic 
core of the story. I mean, I related to it on a also a very literal level because I'm very short. But <laughs> <laughs> for me, it is, you know, like taking such an epic story of the struggle between, you know, good versus evil and distilling it to such a personal journey of each person can play their own part, even if you can't carry on you can't complete the journey on your own like every person playing their own part will ultimately help achieve the goal together that kind of for me is the main takeaway i was introduced through the movies but i remember after the movies came out i bought because you were you're right i leaned to call like the harry potter thing there was like in the early 2000s this big like fantasy renewal in terms of popular culture both in terms of like books and movies that were getting produced and I have like a version that has like gold leaf on like the pages. Like it's like a big Bible or something. And I remember reading that at like my grandparents' house. I forget if I outpaced, if I like started reading after the first movie came out and like outpaced and read it before the movie's finished or not. But, you know, since then I've read, I've reread them, which is weird because I never reread books. That's a huge compliment. I've read The Cimmerillion and Unfinished Tales as well. How is The Cimmerillion? Is it worth it? Like if you're really, really into that world, it's interesting, but it's definitely not. I don't know what you think, Eileen. I happen to be a big, you know, lore world building person. So, you know, for the Song of Ice and Fire books, like I also love like Fire and Blood and World of Ice and Fire. Um, I guess, you know, it's, if you're not that deep into the lore, it can feel a bit cut and dry, but I personally um, love it a lot. There's like little bits of narrative in there that are interesting, specifically the stuff that Christopher Tolkien like expanded into novels, which I haven't read any of those. I don't know if those are good, like Baron and Luthien or whatever. My intro was a combination. I was a huge reader as a kid, and I was really into fantasy books, like the 90s realm of fantasy, which is probably no better than any other realm, but in my brain, the nostalgia of it. I was super into some of Ari Salvatore's early stuff with like the Drizzt series, and I was really into Piers Anthony's Xanth series. Oh yeah, I was a big Piers Anthony fan in junior high. Did you read the Piers Anthony series, The Incarnations of Immortality? No, I think I was just did his core series. The Incarnations of Immortality was amazing. It was about how humans had to take on the job posts of Greek gods. So somebody had to become death. Someone had to become Mars, the god of war. Someone had to become like Gaia, the mother earth. And then I, I saw as a kid, the animated Hobbit movie, which I've never actually rewatched, but I remember it being really scary and really strangely animated. It like, feels like right. night nightmare fuel. <laughs> yeah, it just, it feels like, cause as a kid you're like animated means for kids. Not true. Uh, and then from there, I somehow got into the Hobbit book and didn't know it continued from there. But I remember watching some other movie in the trailer for Lord of the Rings playing and hearing names in the trailer that I knew from the Hobbit book and being confused. And then from there, it was the books. And I tried to beat the movies to the books. And it was the first experience, too, with any type of pop culture where I had an awareness of this is different. What I've read is different than what I'm seeing in terms of like the changes that they make to accommodate the movies. That, yeah, that was my thing. I was obsessed with it. You would have been super young, right, Dan? I was 11 when the first one came out. I think all three of us are all within the same year. We're all 90, 91, right? I've reread Lord of the Rings a few times, and I don't really comprehend how my 10-ish year old self made it through it. Like, I think it's incredible, <laughs> but it is dense. It is not a forgiving young reader book. The Hobbit is, I think. I think works really well for that, but Lord of the Rings is, is a very intense read. A kid isn't it like intentionally written maybe you can correct me if you, you know this eileen it's like intentionally written almost as if it's like a translation of history or something the lord of the rings i think it kind of actually helped for me that 
I was young and my brain just absorbed all that information like a sponge. I feel yeah. like maybe if I encountered it as an adult, I would just stop. <laughs> when you get into the blah, 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 son of blah, son of blah, I'm like, okay, I'm not reading all of that. But when yeah. you're a kid, it's just kind of, you take in all that information and it just washes over you. I grew up in a very religious household and I was made to read the daily Bible and going through a lot of early Old Testament chapters in the Bible, I was prepped for that type of storytelling <laughs> from Lord of the Rings. I was like, oh, this is normal. There are chapters that talk about the lineage of people. And I was a big, I always kept notebooks when I read. I didn't want to mark in my books. So I'd always write in notebooks, like the books were sacred and I'd write in my notebooks. And so I just felt like I had been prepped for that type of world building where you're going to need to know a lot of stuff and it needs to stick for it to make sense. One of the things that really surprised me, because Lord of the Rings is one of my probably top 10 works of literature of all time. And I was surprised when I went back to study Tolkien, he was a really intense Catholic in England. And that that's always a surprise to me when I'm like, oh, <laughs> there you go. And so the biblical resonances in Lord of the Rings, I don't think are accidental, Daniel. He was somebody who was a very devout believer and actually went to mass constantly and stuff and really believed in this like good and evil and like trying to do good. And then he was in World War One, and you guys probably know all that stuff. But my intro to it, I was telling this story at the event and I had to sanitize it because my nephews were there. But basically when my mom and dad divorced, my dad would take my sister and I to these places and I would have these memories I don't think my sister has. So I have this memory of right after the divorce, my dad's like, oh, we're going to Sunland. So we drive into the mountains. He's like, I just got to talk to a friend for a little bit. So we go into this house. And what I didn't know, what my dad admitted to me later on was he was buying weed. So uh, <laughs> we go to this house. He's getting his weed. Long bottom leaf. His weed dealer had Ralph Bakshi's two towers on the TV. So I'm holding Heather's hand in the living room. I remember there's a big aquarium with fish too. And it was the scene where the orcs are whipping, if you've ever seen that. And they're singing this song about like, bring the whip down. Bring. It's like a late 70s rotoscoped. And I was sitting there holding Heather's hand at six and I was like what is this and I was sort of fascinated by it but I was also like you were talking about Daniel I was like this is like no cartoon I've ever seen this is really scary and intense and then my dad was like okay let's go back in the car so then we got back in the car my dad used to call them his hand rolled cigarettes and then when I got older I was like what was that Ziploc bag of hand and he was like oh that was not hand rolled cigarettes Craig that was weed. Uh, and, uh, after that, I actually saw the movies first, loved them, and thought Peter Jackson, I mean, I was just so blown away by the movies. I've talked about this before. I'm not the biggest Star Wars fan. I love Empire Strikes Back, but I'm actually, by and large, I'm not somebody that gets into, like, a mythology or a world and then, like, ride or die by it and go to the convention. You know, I see stuff and I go, and that's just my nature. But... Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, I was like, I can't believe someone did this. They seem to have pulled off something cinematically that I didn't think, kind of like Kubrick and Spielberg said, that I actually didn't know until I saw it that I didn't think could happen. But I wasn't ready to read the books. And I read the books about 10 years later in my early 30s and devoured them. I think Tolkien does this thing, which we can talk about. I'll be very brief about it. For anyone who's never read the books, once they leave the Shire, there's about 100 pages where they hang with this dude named Tom Bombadil. And you're like, what is, I thought this adventure was starting. Why are they in this place out of time with this dude named Tom Bombadil who doesn't seem to care at all about this impending doom that's happening? As I've gotten older and I've talked about this a lot, I actually think 
the Tom Bombadil part in the books is essential because I think that J.R.R. Tolkien is actually making a point about perspective and actually the perspective Tom Bombadil has, the perspective someone like Galadriel and Gandalf would have, they're wizards and then they would have sort of a bigger perspective. And then the perspective that the rest of us would have, which would be a Frodo perspective, which would be like, what's going on? Like kind of the perspective anybody would have during World War II of like, what is going on right now? But I guess I got to fight fascism, which I believe Lord of the Rings was very much about fighting fascism and about World War II and about Hitler and this impending darkness that was taking over the world. But, you know, if you're a historian, you would have kind of a Gandalf Galadriel viewpoint. And then if you were sort of a transcendental character, you would really have a 10,000 year perspective of cycles and this comes and it goes and these battles happen. And, And I realized that that was sort of Tom Bombadil. Anyway... Um, what do you think about the movies and how Peter Jackson adapted the unadaptable? I am, I feel the same way about you where now that I am, you know, working in this industry, like the sheer feat of what he managed, I'm, I'm understanding more and more now how just truly improbable it was. I can't believe anyone ever took a chance on him. And I feel like a lot of people just kind of didn't know what they were getting into in the beginning. And that's kind of what allowed it to happen. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as a work of adaptation, so as someone who loves the books, of course, there are things that I wish had made the cut. I love the Tom Bombadil scene for the same reasons as you, which is, you know, it's for the scope, but also it kind of addresses those questions when you're in a fantasy world. Why aren't these people who seem to be more powerful intervening? And you kind of need that perspective of, you know, what this conflict means to people who are operating in another plane of existence. And, you know, there are certain characterizations that I took exception with at the time. Faramir is one of my favorite characters from the book. And I was very excited for him to make an appearance into towers and I thought you know some of the decisions that they had made with them they upset me at the time although now I kind of understand they were really trying to kind of hammer in on his insecurities in comparison to his brother and you know you can kind of go on and on and nitpick but by and large I, I think it probably is one of the greatest adaptations not just in the fantasy genre but adaptation in general in terms of Agreed. capturing the spirit capturing mm-hmm. the thematic core of the work capturing the character journeys you know it just feels evergreen to me it's kind of wild to think like those movies came out you know 20 years ago and you watch them now i mean other than some of the questionable CGI work with the army of the dead. Like by and large, I think you watch it now and it still feels fresh. And I think a lot of films that came out after that, that relied more on CGI as opposed to the practical effects and sets that Peter Jackson relied on. I mean, I think there's a reason why it still feels like so current, which I know we're not getting into the Hobbit movies, but I felt like, you know, it wasn't as successful in that regard. To your point, I've actually, and I love Peter Jackson, I've never seen the Hobbit movies, and this is no offense to Mr. Jackson, but I I saw the trailers, and I was like, I just, I don't need to see it. And as somebody who read it, The Hobbit is meant to be one movie that races by, in my opinion, at an hour and 40 minutes, because that's how it reads. I don't know why they made it three movies other than Profit Motive and yada yada, but I just, that's not The Hobbit. The Hobbit isn't Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit's like a prologue. I did watch all three because I can't say no. (laughs) It's a very imperfect adaptation. I think the way it relates to this conversation is actually um, it shows why you need some cuts and adjustments when you do make an adaptation. I think with The Hobbit, they, they try to basically capture the entire journey and also add in, you know, material from the appendices to kind of flesh out 
what Galadriel and Elrond, these other you know, beloved characters were actually doing at the same time. And initially as a fan, you're like, oh, I kind of want to see everything. And of course I want to see those characters and those actors inhabiting those roles again. But when you actually watch the bloat of content across those three movies, you're like, okay, I understand why as a filmmaker, you have to make those tough decisions to cut some material out, even if as a fan, um, you kind of want to see just everything about yeah. your beloved world. But yeah, I it's think a- Peter Jackson had much more restraint with the Lord of the Rings movies. Of course, you know, the extended editions are there for us to kind of spend a little bit more time with that world. But it's interesting, the Hobbit movies, because the Lord of the Rings weren't, was produced by New Line. By the time the Hobbit movies come around, it's Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers, I think specifically in the 2010s, they've gotten a little better in recent years, but had a really big issue with like letting auteur directors actually do cool stuff with their IPs. I think the biggest issue with the Hobbit's kind of what you were saying. There's a narrative bloat that specifically is justified as trying to frame it as a prequel to Lord of the Rings, as opposed to just the story that happened before. It's like something's happening in the foreground and then the camera zooms in and there's Sauron's ghost or something. Not literally that, but like conceptually that. What are your thoughts about the trilogy and what Peter Jackson did in the film? I agree on an adaptation level. I think that this is probably about as good as you could possibly do. I know like people are like, you should make like a 20 hour miniseries or whatever so you can have this and this and this and i think there's something to be said that you know movies are a different form than books obviously and what makes a book strong is not the same thing that makes a movie strong and so i think the changes they made in adapting the lord of the rings by and large strengthen the narrative and focus everything in a way that you have to for a movie I think the movies are great. I think the Howard Shore music for the movies is probably the best film score of the century so far, if not one of the best ever made. Just some of the cinematography, like all those landscape shots where people are just like running across the landscape. I thought this about the last third of Titanic when we screened it. And I was thinking about this when I was watching those scenes where I was like, this must have been such a pain in the ass to shoot. Like, it was like such a nightmare, but in a way that's like, I'm glad they did it. And I'm sure, and I'm guessing this is correct based on what the actors and people have said. It's almost like a, like a really tough, like summer camp sort of experience or something or like band camp or something where at the time you're like, ah, this sucks, (laughs) but you're bonding with all these people and creating this memory and connection with each other, which, you know, I think probably translates to on screen. I mean, you really do feel a kinship between those actors for sure. Like a real affection. And it's weird because you you watch it and you could break down and I'm sure like the actual shared screen time back and forth of like Gimli and Legolas is probably not that much if I had to guess. Like if you actually just pulled out their scenes, it's probably like 30 minutes, an hour maybe, but you feel so much like that little arc and it's done so bluntly the way it's introduced. I remember when we, we rewatched it at the event in the first movie where just immediately Gimli's like, I hate elves. I don't trust this elf. I hate his guts, but it works. It's so rich and full. Talking about adaptation changes, I think beefing up some of the women's roles, especially Eowyn, is a very strong choice. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the same boat of glowing praise. I assume many film scholar things will be taught about like the adaptation process in relation to this. I, 
I feel like Peter Jackson and company fully understood how the translation from the book medium to the screen medium had to happen in a way that I think it's lost a lot of times in, in adaptations of pulling these great things, but also not being tied to it, that there are better ways to tell some things in the visual medium that you can't pull from a book because a book has the benefit of being in someone's head and having all this time to describe and spend time to develop things that you're often not given to because of running time in movies, which doesn't really apply because you have the extended editions. From my perspective of, of a reader and a fan of these films is like Connor was saying, a lot of the decisions where they're kind of adding in character beats or pumping up roles that the worldview at the time ignored, I think is valuable and works because Lord of the Rings never feels like, at least the original trilogy never feels like it's in service of anything but itself. It's not trying to build a bigger world to adapt to a huge franchise. It's just in service of the story it's telling. And it knew, I think, because it was shooting back to back and was being written simultaneously, it knew its scope, where it would end and where it would begin. Watching it at the theater, this was the first time I'd rewatched the theatrical version since theaters, because I moved to the extended ones exclusively. And it's really interesting to see just how tight and how effective the theatrical ones are, that those cuts, which in my mind were things like, you can't cut that. That's you know so important to the thing. There's a few moments that I maybe still think that on, but it still feels like you love this movie from this. And then you were given something that had even more on top of it that just then added all these extra layers that seemed to be even more rewarding. And not in a way that felt like, oh, I know why they cut this in a way you're like, oh, I love having the time for this. It does not make sense for a typical viewing experience. I joke a lot about seeing something like I saw Top Gun and I was like, cinema, like this is what I want from cinema. The Lord of the Rings is like 12 hours of chef's kiss. Every decision and the fact that it feels having spent a lot of time with Peter Jackson's work and see his vision through and through. So many times, you know, we get big movies that we have directors we're excited about coming on and you see glimpses of them. Whereas Lord of the Rings feels like a Peter Jackson movie through and through. All of his little quirks as a filmmaker are on display in ways that I'm surprised he got away with. Like Eileen was saying, you're like, how did he pull this off? How did he get this money? Those orcs are terrifying. Urukai, what are the orcs called that are the mega orcs? The like goblin hybrid, the Urukai. Are some of his like Peter Jackson's early style, especially is like kind of similar to Sam Raimi's in certain ways. And there's some like weird shots, especially in Fellowship, like doing the zoom in with like the arrow getting fired. And like it's like a POV of the arrow going at the door and stuff, as opposed to the Hobbit and the GoPro cam on the barrel. Oh, classic <laughs> moment. We talk a lot about uh, old and new stuff here, but it's it's really great to revisit things and they're just as good as you remember them and just as important, if not more so than when you first saw them. I think that's kind of incredible as just a concept with these things is that they were fundamental to me at 11 and they still feel just as, as fresh. When you love movie making, what you hope, and everyone comes in movie making differently, but at least for me, you know, you love to see someone, as you guys were saying, who you feel a really strong artistic voice but you're also engaged in the characters. There's also an understanding of storytelling. There's also an understanding, especially with something like Lord of the Rings, of theme. Because as Eileen was saying at the beginning of this, this notion that even you know a hobbit can be the most decisive player in a moment, but also that this very profound theme about power. When I saw the trilogy, I love the whole thing. But to me, the Helm's Deep sequence... I was just like slapping my head in that shot when the ladders went up at Helm's Deep. I think I almost stood up in my seat and I was like, what is going on? <laughs> like, how did they? I used to tell people this at the time, but I was like, if I was a hobbit leaning my head over Helm's Deep and I saw 10,000 orcs, I'd like 
myself. Excuse my language. I'd be like, what the, the way he filmed that and like the lightning and the Urukai. And I was like, wait, there are 300 of us. And Peter Jackson really communicates that. He really communicates that these 300 people are like, well, we could either cower it out. And then the elves show up. So we did all three movies in one day. We continued our tradition of being told we had one version and then finding out we had another. We had been told and it was on the box. We thought we were going to show extended fellowship, extended two towers, theatrical return, because no 35 millimeter printed the extended uh, return exists. Instead, we got theatrical fellowship. And what was funny to me, and my sister made this comment, was that now your generation and the generation below you also engages with the movies in terms of memes. So what was really funny to me was the audience was sort of respectful. And we had a huge audience. We had about 350 people who kept coming back. It was awesome. And probably our biggest day in terms of we have never had three back-to-back movies in one day where essentially a sold-out Vista audience was at every one. So we had 350, 350, 350. And that moment when Boromir, that Sean Bean's character, when he's like, one does not simply walk into Mordor, like that moment, suddenly everybody was like somebody had given the audience permission to be a movie audience again. From that moment on, for the next seven hours or whatever it was, like eight hours, every line, I guess I didn't know the potatoes thing is now a meme. The hobbits are going to Isengard. Yeah, all that. Like suddenly people were screaming and cheering and shouting. And Eileen, you were talking about when Aragorn opens the doors, like (laughs) women were screaming. And then suddenly people were like choosing if they were Legolas or Team Gimli. Didn't your wife react to that moment as well, Daniel? Uh, when she watched the movies. I think a lot of things clicked at that moment for her. <laughs> I didn't realize it was such a cultural moment, but I, I, it definitely left a deep impression on me as a prepubescent um, <laughs> child. But I was talking about Lord of the Rings in my room years ago, and all the women just immediately were like, oh my God, Aragorn with the doors. And our writer's assistant said something that stuck with me because she was like, I remember that exact moment where I sat in the theaters and I saw that scene. And she thought to herself, oh, I'm a woman now. Um, (laughs) I remember when they were coming out, kids in school that were seeing it would talk about like Legolas was like the heartthrob. And then Two Towers dropped and that happened. And suddenly the conversation took a big shift. And I don't know what it is. I think it's just the performance and the framing. But all of a sudden, there were multiple players in the game. If you're trying to decide who you're in love with. Peter Jackson also, and you cannot overstate this. He understood, I actually think a way that most filmmakers don't, and I mean this, even filmmakers I respect, that he's making a movie for an audience. In doing my research, I heard this amazing contemporaneous interview in 2002, People Should Check Out with Charlie Rose, where he's just finishing Return of the King. And Peter Jackson talks about how he loves audience movies. You know, he said King Kong's his favorite escapist movies, but when he says escapist, he means movies that make the audience like cheer. And what I'm getting at is when you see Fellowship, Two Towers, and Return of the King, every movie has at least 15 moments where the camera goes slow-mo or it tracks into someone or someone has a dope line and they look into the camera and talk about taking a risk. Peter Jackson, that's a comedian banking that that's the punchline. That's a comedian banking that everyone erupts into applause at that moment. Imagine if you sucked as a filmmaker and you (laughs) do a slow motion thing of Aragorn entering Helm's Deep and it's crickets. I mean, imagine that. And yet Peter Jackson was banking, banking, banking. And the thing that we learned, we had Mark Pellerin who was there doing behind the scenes for the entire trilogy. 
And he said the thing that most people don't know was that there was so much trial and error. He said they shot a scene where Aragorn fought Saruman, or Sauron, I'm sorry, and it was Sauron in the full-on like knight stuff that you see in the beginning because they thought, well, maybe we need to have the hero fight the villain. And then he said the funny thing was that Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, who people should probably know are partners in real life as well as creative life and co-writers, they kept coming back to the Tolkien, but he said they did all this stuff where they would experiment, they would write scenes, they'd be like, maybe we need this, maybe we need that, and then they'd be like, no, no, we're okay, we don't need that. But he said the thing that people don't know is that there is 10 hours of A-B tested stuff, and so it wasn't like they knew exactly what was gonna work, and the story that stuck with me, elevated my respect for Peter Jackson, was they're shooting Helms Deep in a quarry, and New Line was suing Peter Jackson. And the producer, the representative for New Line, had like back in the day a cell phone and a briefcase and he was coming up like the Helm's Deep steps to Peter Jackson who was trying to film this thing and literally it was New Line serving him with papers that they were suing him for going over budget, for doing all this stuff. And I'll tell you, if anybody has ever seen directors and behind the scenes stuff, a lot of directors throw diva fits or scream or my vision or this and that. Peter Jackson and I was like, man, I hope this is what I do. He took a breath. He said, listen, you tell them that if they keep interrupting me, there will be no movie. And if there is no movie, then we all fail. He said, I understand we're all under tremendous pressure right now, but if I don't finish these films, there will be nothing to release. So the best thing that they can do is they made a bet. They can stop calling me and I can finish filming this sequence because I have five more days on this set. So would you tell them that? I'm not taking the call. And the producer was like sweating blood and the producer told him that. And New Line was like gritting their teeth and he finished Helm's Deep and he moved on and he was absolutely right. And what Mark Pellerin said was that Peter Jackson never screamed. He never threw a diva fit. He would always just say, I have got this many days to get this sequence before we move on to this next sequence. I would like to get it all on the screen. And I think having that calm and that rational viewpoint, which actually if I was writing the check, I'd be like, you know what? He's right. Why am I going to interrupt him for two hours when I know he's only on Helm's Deep for, and that's the centerpiece sequence in the middle movie. So that story, I was like, that's brass. And a lot of directors too would cave in. Frankly, the majority of directors would cave in. I love these movies. They're some of my favorite. People know I've got like a little Lord of the Rings wall. The characters as I get older that if my favorite characters, I think more and more might be uh, Boromir and King Theoden. They're such human characters, very flawed characters in ways who go through a lot of pain, but who still, I think, are fundamentally noble. And are redeemed. It's like boys being boys positive. It's like the most positive versions of masculinity. What is the name of the character? He's sort of the flip side of that. He's not redeemed. He's the father. Denethor. And you see the toxicity of a viewpoint that will not admit it's wrong. The Lord of the Rings DVDs, and we, we got to interview Michael Pellerin about this, but the appendices, all the behind the scenes stuff was like a filmmaking Bible. And it was just really interesting as an 11 year old having access to this felt like as if I had just been given everything I needed. I mean, it made no sense in terms of like the scale of things, but it really felt like the first time that a movie felt approachable where you had access to this insane archive of not only behind the scenes footage, but very detailed accounts of the struggles of movie making. And it kind of made movies feel real to me for the first time. 
I didn't tell Michael that because I was I thought it'd be embarrassing to drop it on him. But in the realm of pop culture, when I think back to Lord of the Rings and how important they are as movies, I also think that it's super important to like the filmmaking part of my brain because it was the thing that made me feel even at the biggest scale that this was maybe possible to do as a career because I could see it being done in these things. And I think that's pretty dope. I actually had a Lord of the Rings themed Sweet 16 and my friends just kind of all pulled nice. money together and they got me, you know, like a replica of Arwen's Even Star necklace and a couple of frame stills from the movie and also the DVDs. And I just remember watching, I mean, all the behind the scenes and with all the cast commentary, the crew, the director's commentary, and it truly felt like trauma bonding, like you're talking about Connor. It's, they went through so much together. It was just all those stories about, you know, their matching tattoos and Viggo Mortensen breaking his foot. Dominic Monaghan pranking Elijah Wood. Oh my God. And the wig. The wig. The wig. <laughs> yeah. I must have watched the entire trilogy at least 20 times, but... As Connor knows, because we were sobbing together at that marathon screen. I watch it every year and it still gets me. And to what you were saying, Craig, about, you know, Peter Jackson just trusting himself as a filmmaker um, when it comes to those big moments and crowd-pleasing moments, I think another reason that sets these movies apart is he really trusted himself when it comes to these emotional moments. I think when you have these big battle action sequences, like you might think like, do we really need to take a pause and have this big emotional speech, you know, with soaring music, is it too much? But I think there's a reason why we keep going back to those scenes. And, you know, when I'm feeling like, you know, I'm, life is getting me down or, you know, I always go back to Theoden's, you know, what men can do against such reckless hate. And, you know, when you see, Gandalf arriving with the Rohirrim or you know the speech with Pippin and Gandalf you know talking about death and Gandalf says death is just another path one um, that we all must take it's like those speeches I feel like you know I'm sure an exec could always give that note it's like do we really need to take you know five minutes to just have an emotional conversation about death but that's why I feel like it really stays with you like those themes are still so resonant today and I think it takes a truly exceptional filmmaker to you know really fight for and preserve those moments and you know it's not just a bloated fantasy series with dragons and battles and all that it, it tells a story of hope against impossible odds and I think that's what makes it feel so current even today pop culture final thoughts i don't really have anything to shout out today because we've been recording we've recorded like a bunch of episodes right re- recently <laughs> we showed election this week also i love that movie everybody go see see election i talked about it like five weeks ago on the podcast or something i don't know how time works anymore and you can find me at twitch.tv slash connor cruz and watch me play DD tuesday evenings twitch.tv slash nerdala as we spoke about last week i watched ryan's babe which was connor's choice for film and i got into my thoughts on it last week during that podcast that was a great conversation one i think one of our, our best. best but i think the same conversation should happen around last year's musical masterpiece dear evan hansen which Oof. really took me by surprise <laughs> two and a half hours i'd love to tell you the plot but just watch the plot just watch it eileen has her palm to her face I've only heard about this like tangentially. This thing's a train wreck, huh? It's unbelievable. I know it's like a bigger thing on Broadway. I don't know if the Broadway adaptation changes some of the core issues, which is just the initial stuff. But it is a beautiful thing that we'll get to live with forever. There's a great Jenny Nicholson video breaking it down. That's like 70 minutes long. This will be it was something I didn't get into the conversation, but... It was funny when they go to Rivendell in Fellowship of the Ring, they're just having conversations at night 
I was like, man, I really wish Rivendell existed. I'd totally go take my wife there. Like this place is dope. Just all, all the like the houses and the rivers. And to your point, Eileen, at the very beginning about world building, you know, they were also talking about when Mark Pellerin was there, your point about how he was using so many of the practical effects that really made movies movies from miniatures to matte paintings to real locations and then sewing them together in a way. And I still feel to this day that that's the model until someone comes up with a better one. I think that is the model. If you really want somebody to have a reaction in the audience of, I want to live in that world. I mean, we were talking about Star Wars at the beginning. The first three Star Wars movies are miniatures, model work, real locations in Tunisia. You know, they were made the way movies were made. And that's what made that whole generation want to like dress up as a and Jedi for the rest of their lives till they're 82. And so, you know, I'm looking at Connor, his screensaver is Bilbo's house or the Baggins house. And Daniel's screensaver is, I don't know what the two kings are called. The waterfall. The Argonauts, yeah. Those are real sets. If I ever get to make something, which would be a dream on the scale of Lord of the Rings, I hope and I would tell everybody, and I know studios and money people are going to be like, you know, you're never getting a movie based on after you say this. But the story you hear again and again, whether it's Steven Spielberg or James Cameron or Peter Jackson or the filmmaker of the future, is the studio just freaking out. Don't do it this way. Why are you doing it this way? This is going to be a nightmare. We never should have hired you. Akira Kurosawa tells the same story, I will let you know, when he made Rashomon. The studio's like, you're a nightmare. We're never letting you do something like this again. Then it comes out, makes a boatload of money, becomes the greatest thing since sliced bread, and then everybody takes credit for it. And I know that there are 99 stories where that failed to every one story where it succeeded. And I respect the money side as well. I run my own business. <laughs> and I know what money people are thinking when you have to write the check and you're like, oh boy, I know what's in the account. And you don't know what's in the account and I know what's in the account. But I, we had producer David Gale talking about election and Alexander Payne. And he said, hey, when you're a producer, your decision was when you hired the director. That was your decision. And if the director was the wrong fit and it's all downhill, you have to own that decision. He said the most important decision is when you say, whose vision do I believe in? Who do I think can be the general of this army? And I just hope for people in the future, if you really have a vision and you really think you're making an audience movie, you do have to take a breath and explain to people why you're making these decisions. You can't cave in. And if you cave in on every decision, it will be a mediocrity. It will absolutely be a mediocrity. I promise you. But it's tough when so much money is riding on the line. You know what? I'll, I'll shout out The Hobbit. I'd mentioned before that it's an imperfect series, but like I think it would have been easier for me if it was just uniformly bad. What's frustrating is that there are actually some really good gems in there. I think Martin Freeman's performance yeah. as Bobo is just perfect. His casting um, is perfect. Yeah. yeah, especially in the third movie when you see him just shattered after the Battle of the Five Armies and you see the toll that it's taken on him. I think he does really great work. Like I felt like I'd spent a lifetime just waiting to see the riddles in the dark scene between Bilbo and Gollum. And I thought they were just amazing in that scene and Benedict Cumberbatch's smog. You know, I, I knew that those moments were coming and when they came, they 
just hit that sweet spot for me. So everything else, the bloat around it, I was able to kind of get through it. You know, after having loved the books and the movies for such a long time, you know, when Billy Boyd starts plaintively singing, it just gets me. So the third movie, it ends with Billy Boyd actually singing over the credits. And I was just a full emotional wreck because despite its faults, the movie reminded me, like it felt like kind of like an end of a chapter in my life as a fan who's, you know, loved the series for so long. And it still kind of got me in that emotional course. So I don't know. I would suggest if you have a long holiday weekend and you don't have <laughs> anything else to do, I think there are some things in it that are still worth checking out. Do you think there's like a edit where it's the opposite of the extended versions where somebody could take the three movies and actually edit together a really tight two or three hour movie? Yeah, I mean, I'd be shocked if someone hasn't tried that yet, but I think that's totally possible. I think it'd be probably like more like three to four hours, but I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you cut out some of the extraneous action sequences and some of the stuff that like Galadriel and Elrond, they get to like, yeah. it's just cool in concept when you see the actual execution. I was like, oh, I don't really want to be seeing this right now. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's something that Peter Jackson would ever tackle. I would never do it if he had no interest in it because he deserves to do whatever he wants he earned it but i i almost wonder if there's another masterpiece peter jackson movie within the three hobbits that could be edited i mean the performances are really great if you can look past orlando bloom just looking a little cursed haunted <laughs> you probably just cut you probably just cut the legolas stuff out to be fair yeah i mean i would love to see a tight condensed version of it and i think people might actually enjoy that version well eileen that's interesting why edwin will never be a good filmmaker i really appreciate you man <laughs> if, he, if he doesn't open up his heart to lord of the rings how could he ever really understand filmmaking I'm really glad we spent an hour talking about why Edwin will always be the first in line, but never the first behind the camera. I, I heard everything you freaking said, you bastard. <laughs> oh, Edwin! I didn't know you were here with us. All right, Eileen, thank you very much. Let's give it up for Eileen. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Um, I could talk about this for five more hours, so yeah. if you ever do a part two, let me know. <laughs> we might do the extended might part. have to. So I want to thank everybody. Have a great week. As always, this episode was edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz, our Chief Creative Content Officer. We would love to have you at our Raiders event tomorrow at uh, the Million Dollar Theater. Next week, the Mark Azoro with a live orchestra in August. Comic book artist Mike Magnola talking about Hellboy, Bride of Frankenstein, comic book. He's doing a poster for us, which is incredible. August 13th. You can find out everything we do at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite at Secret Movie Club and uh, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Our next podcast is going to be a Defend This Movie. We are actually recording a number of Defend This movies that we're going to release across July and August. Not too many, but a few. We're going to pepper here and there. I don't know if our Defend This movie is beloved or not, but we sure enjoy doing it. So come listen to it. We are going to do a Defend This movie. Guest stars will include Edwin Cesar Gomez and Patrick McElroy taking, I believe, me on in the ones we've discussed. And uh, that's it. So stay tuned. It's a surprise Defend This movie. Everybody, have a great week. Thank you so much. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. And go all the best with all of your producing and writing and you're working. You're making it happen. You're making the next epic entertainments for us. So we wish you all the best. Thanks so much. I can't yeah. wait until someone has a podcast episode tearing apart my work. <laughs> Have a great week, everybody. I love you, family.
You know what? If I made that sitcom, that's just Edwin. All it would be would be him enraging his like co-stars, and it would be a completely new cast every week. <laughs> All right, man. We'll see you in an hour. See you next. Right. See ya. Nice to meet you. Not a, just, oh, gosh. God, I'm okay. <laughs> right. No, I'm signing that's off. just Edwin. Did he run into a stood up like drum set or something? That guy is a radio ninja. Anyone else, I would be like, that was an orchestrated bit. But I know (laughs) that was a legitimate accident. I don't know anymore.